The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? You're not slowing down, so your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a golf plan. Lincoln Financial has the products to help protect and grow your financial future. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-dealer affiliate, Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Maggie Haberman, political correspondent for The New York Times. Michael Barbaro is away on vacation again this week. Today, we've left our offices at The Times and headed the 10 blocks or so uptown to Trump Tower, the epicenter of President-elect Donald Trump's transition team, the current heart of operations, where person by person, the cabinet that will govern the country over the next four years is being put together, just one floor above where we are now. We're here for a sit-down conversation with one of the president-elect's most trusted advisors, a member of his innermost circle during the campaign, Kellyanne Conway. It's one of the longest interviews she's given this year. Our goal was to let her speak in depth and to provide a window into how the Trump team views and frames the controversies and contentions of their campaign and now their transition to the White House. Kellyanne, thanks for doing this. Thank you very much, Maggie. It's a pleasure. Let's start by telling the country a bit about who you are. You have become one of the most famous women across the country. Most people know you, they recognize you, they stop you for selfies on Fifth Avenue, or they think they know you because of this election. Uh, Through your now infamous caricature on Saturday Night Live, you had an entire life before this campaign and before that. Answer this question for our listeners. Who are you? Kellyanne Conway, in many ways, is just a very typical uh, American woman trying to find that extra minute, extra hour for a little bit of uh, sixth grade math homework, maybe a little bit of exercise or downtime, seeing friends that I miss very much or family members with whom I don't have as much time as I'd like. And in many other ways, I'm someone who's been blessed to breathe some of the rarefied air of politics, really given this opportunity by Donald Trump to work at the highest echelons of a presidential campaign. And that's been an incredibly heady experience. Look at me as somebody who's been very fortunate to have opportunities, predominantly through male clients and male bosses over the years who are accustomed to having powerful women or women with great ideas or women who are trusted and fully respected and engaged, their opinions solicited. And I think this is an example of a lot of hard work and talent, Maggie, but also some luck. I was in the right place at the right time. And I just want to say that many American women work so hard their entire careers or in their jobs, and they never really get their shot. So I feel like what's made me different is I got my shot. Talk about your experiences before this campaign, who you worked for. You did a stint uh, on the main super PAC supporting Senator Ted Cruz. But prior to the 2016 cycle, tell our listeners a little bit about what you did. So educationally, I have a law degree, and I'm, a, I'm admitted to practice law in four states, but I have considered myself for two decades now a fully recovered attorney. I feel like I've gone through the 12-step program and everything of coming out and saying, hey, this is just not the most rewarding profession for me. And part of that was because I thought I would want to be married and have children one day, and I thought if I had something that gave me a little bit more flexibility, then that would be more suitable to those desires. And that's a very personal choice for all women, certainly. 
So I started in polling uh, in the summer between my junior and senior years of college. I took a job for $8 an hour with Dick Worthland. He was Ronald Reagan's pollster. And it was the end of the Reagan years and what would be the beginning of the George W. Excuse me, George Herbert Walker Bush years. And the very first assignment Dick Worthland ever gave me as lowest person on the totem pole was the gender gap. And that's pretty ironic because some many years later, we're still talking about it and trying to navigate through it. June 1st, 1995, I went out on my own, started my own company when I was 28 years old called The Polling Company, and I've had that for 21 years. Political clients have been Governor Mike Pence. I worked on Newt Gingrich's 2012 race as a pollster and a senior advisor. I worked for Dan Quayle when he ran for president in 2000. My business was always purposely small, but over time, I got to know people like Donald Trump or like Newt Gingrich or like... Uh, Dan Quayle or Mike Pence, and very appreciative of the opportunity to break into the old boys or new boys network, if you will, of Republican politics. I, I think it's, um, I sometimes think I'm in the men's room at a bachelor party at the Elks Club in <laughs> Republican <laughs> politics. And, and so it's, uh, in some ways, being able to have a seat at the table is itself remarkable. And then just being able to have the seat at the table as a campaign manager. I, th I think it's been um, pretty spectacular. Do you think you are misunderstood? And if you are, how? Certainly. And that's a great question nobody ever asks. In this role, I'm probably a good example um, for many of us, frankly, Maggie, of being misunderstood by people who don't know you and want to think the worst of you. And so the misunderstanding comes in trying to reduce each other into 140 characters and being presumptively negative and judgmental about that. And the misunderstanding could be for example, I, I've of late particularly been revealing that I have four children that are 12, 12, 8, and 7 because I just look at that as my greatest consideration as to what to do next. She has twins, just to interrupt to explain the 12, 12. <laughs> That's right. Um, Boy-girl twins and then two additional daughters. And Maggie, um, that's my greatest blessing in my life. I, I, I love that I'm a mother of four. I had them later in life. They are the joys um, of my soul. But they're also my greatest consideration And how can I live out my best and highest use for President Trump and Vice President Pence and yet have those children be first in my life? And this is, this is a question many American women ask themselves, so that doesn't make me unique. What's been unique is the, the attacks from people who just think what a ridiculous, you know, anti-feminist way of looking at things or where's your husband, why won't he help? Or um, you, then why did you have the kids in the first place? You know, or what a ridiculous, it's just really unbelievably awful. And look, I think social media can be a cesspool of insults, there's no question. People misunderstanding me also think that I sugarcoat things with Donald Trump. It's actually the opposite. He really respects people who are tough I'm very tough, but I am respectful and deferential. I do not call him by his first name. I know he's the boss. It's his campaign. It's his choice and his voice. But at the same time, I would be doing him a huge disservice by not telling him the truth or giving my best advice or presenting alternatives to what we may be doing, we may be doing or thinking. And he appreciates that toughness. He appreciates blunt advice um, when given by people, somebody who cares about him. Uh, I just also think there's a misunderstanding that somehow I live this glamorous, charmed life. I mean, I'm a great example of the American dream, whereas my husband comes from a middle-class background. I come from a single mom 
and a middle-class background, maybe. Some days I wonder if it was. And I am a product of the 1970s where you had the feminist movement and women like my mother being told, you know, who needs a man and you could do whatever you, you want. And I, I was raised at a time when my mother taught me values and my mother taught me to be a giver, not a taker. And I think it just steeled me into believing in myself, to be impervious to the naysayers and critics, to know who I am, to have that self-confidence and self-designation in a way that propels me to this moment. Because I, I don't know if I could have done what she did, which is be a single mom with a toddler uh, and no alimony, no child support, a high school degree, and probably on her part, the, the reasonable expectation that she would never again go into the workforce, that she would just have a lot of children and be a housewife and a mom and be very happy with that. And so she picked herself up and she just figured it out. And that's, that's very much inspiring to me. But it also means that that never really leaves you. It never really leaves you. It's a piece of who you are. And so I did not go to the fancy schools. I did not have a trust fund. I did not have privilege um, but I have exactly the childhood that I, I adore and that I would never trade in. Um, and that's I just think that's important that we not judge each other based on what we see now because everybody has his or her own story and everybody has his or her own struggle. And I do try to approach people that way. I want to follow that up. Uh, you hinted at this, and I think this is some of what you were talking about in terms of sort of criticism or attacks. You made some news in recent days for a comment that you made about your own role uh, in a potential Trump White House where you talked about women being welcome in the Trump White House. Uh, the question that you posed to your male colleagues, you said, is would you want your wife to take that particular job? Explain to people what you meant by that. Uh, some critics heard it as saying that women need to balance home and career differently than men. I want to hear from you what you meant with that. What I meant by that is I was having a very congenial conversation with two of my male colleagues here at the transition who will have big jobs in the Trump White House, the same kind of big job I've been offered by the president-elect. And I'm flattered and humbled, and I would be very excited to serve. But before I can accept that job, I have to recognize that I'm a mother of four children who are at very tender, very fraught ages. 12, 12, 8, and 7, and I can't just say, oh, but they'll be okay, you know, or, or someone else will take care of them, or it's okay if I'm not there most days or most nights. My male colleagues are looking at it through the prism of they have, you know, wives, or they either have grown children or, or wives who shoulder most of the child care burden or most of the child rearing responsibilities. And and that's, that's just different. I was just trying to explain to them, don't apply your own sense here. You have to, the question is, would you feel comfortable if you're the mother of your children who's responsible for the lion's share of the child rearing were to take a job like this, how would you feel? And it was very transformative to them. And it's a very real consideration. Um, I like the fact that Valerie Jarrett, perhaps the closest advisor to President Obama, who's been there all eight years by his side, I like the fact that she approached me and said, Kellyanne, you really should do it. We've tried to make it so that it's more family-friendly. You, you can do this. She said that she was a single mom with a grown daughter, so it was a little bit different for Valerie. But I very much appreciated her giving me that advice and then making that advice public. Um, I'm told that it was Robert Gibbs, the former press secretary to President Obama, who had a, 
a line. He said uh, that the White House is family friendly, but it's friendly to one family. And that's a that's a pretty good line, and I I know how he meant it. He just meant that's just that's just the way it ends up being. People can try as much as they can. You see in corporate America, I saw in legal America when I worked there, you have these massive corporate handbooks and there's chapters and chapters about our family friendliness. And the, you know, the minute, so it's all there in chapter 64, but the minute you try to execute on that family friendliness, it's, oh, well, we need you to fly to such and such or it's really important you be here. So I'm just trying to balance, balance it all, balance the different considerations and see what's best for my family. I don't think that makes me any different. And the people who attacked it um, don't like Donald Trump to begin with, by and large, and didn't want him to be president and still don't. But they should realize instead of them, I don't need them to celebrate me as the first successful female campaign manager of a presidential race in U.S. history, but they ought to not attack me for putting my children um, first. To that end, can you update us on what your role will be either in the White House or outside it as, as an advisor at an outside group that's supporting the president? Some have suggested that my role is the, quote, Kellyanne role. I kind of like that phrase because I know what it means. It's it's part, you know, um, Trump confidant and consultant. It's part Trump communications person. He wants me to be a face of his administration the way I was a face of his campaign. It is um, certainly part of his inner circle. It's a great relationship with his wife and his children and and their spouses. It's somebody who very much believes in his 100-day agenda that he wants to execute on very quickly. He's a man who wants to do many things very quickly and has promised to do so. And so I can add support and bolstering to that on the inside through a former role in the West Wing. That is available to me. And that should make all women happy that Donald Trump has offered that to the highest-ranking women in his campaign, um, excluding his family, of course. I don't include them in personnel. Uh, and Or I can stay on the outside, Maggie, and I can build what I call the surround sound superstructure, the political operation, the C4, the super PAC, that basically helps aid the president's agenda while he's trying to push through the legislative initiatives, uh, the nominees to be confirmed, and also then get us ready for 2018, the midterms. You feel like in politics, they're almost around the corner, I hate to tell everyone. And the 2018 midterms could really be great for President Trump and Vice President Pence because the Democrats are defending 25 U.S. Senate seats, including in 10 states that President Trump just won and in a few other states that he came close to winning. And the Republicans are defending eight U.S. Senate seats. So it really could be a very positive, very successful year and the, for all we know, the president could get a, those 60 seats in the, in the Republican Senate. So that's exciting. That operation needs to happen anyway. It's, it's an imperative. It's absolutely essential. Whether I run or someone else runs it is an open question. I'd be happy to do it only because I think you need somebody who has the president's trust, who knows him and gets him, who understands the policy issues, who's known and respected by the donors, who's beloved by the grassroots, frankly, and has relationships on Capitol Hill. So I would be happy to do that, be very happy to do that. Do you imagine that part of that entity's role, whether you're leading it or somebody else is leading it, will potentially be going after congressional Republicans who might not share the president's agenda and share his view of what should be done? That is not currently under consideration. What we would hope to do is encourage people through these policies to see something good in them that really represents the kind of change and progress that people want and that would improve their lives.
But there is no there's no discussion whatsoever of running primary opponents against people or try to take out congressional Republicans. Um, but we also know that not everyone's going to agree. I mean, President George W. Bush faced that. President Obama faced it a little bit, but President George W. Bush faced it on things like No Child Left Behind or TARP, certainly Medicare Part D. All three of those, the new vice president voted against, Mike Pence, when he was a congressman from Indiana's 6th Congressional District. So these, these, these presidents do face that. But this is meant to be uh, a non-punitive tool. This is meant to be a tool for communicating and having the mechanics and the messaging and also the, the substance, the policy all in one place. It, it also sent, it would also send a message to everyone masquerading as, you know, the Trump organization or this group of Trump tied consultants that two things, Maggie. One is this is the Trump blessed organization. So if you'd like to have your money, your time and attention here, if you'd like to work for it, please apply. Secondly, it is in keeping with the drain the swamp commitment that he's made. How? Well, we want to compensate consultants fairly and fully. But no one's going to get rich doing this, and there are no, no more no-show jobs in Republican consultancy. I long have railed against what I call staff infection. And <laughs> it's, I, I've heard you say that I can attest to it, that that's real. That's right. It's real, and it now will be completely cured, or mostly cured. We have somebody <laughs> in the White House who goes to Washington owing no one anything. There are no existing contracts for Republican consultants that need to be re renewed. Many of them were against him, and many of them just weren't necessary to his operation. I mean, early on, the summer of 2015, when he announced, I remember saying on a, a, a different networks program that the thing about Donald Trump is he shows that he doesn't need the donors, he doesn't need the consultants, and he's number one. So it makes both of them very nervous that maybe they're extinct. Well, they're not extinct. They are necessary, and we do need them, but not to the point where it's no longer a meritocracy or it's no longer functional and effective and free market. I mean, look, if we're the pro-free market, pro-competition party, then we ought to have it in our consultancy. And you're going to see that in this particular operation. But there's still a, there's still a very good chance that I go into the West Wing and be senior counselor to the president um, or so. And, and I know he'd like me to be press secretary, and I'm absolutely flattered, but I have, I have politely declined that role. Was there any other role that might appeal to you in the White House um, other than sort of a, a Kellyanne role, quote-unquote, um, in communications? Is there anything else that might appeal to you? What appeals to me is having what I have now with the president-elect Maggie, which is unfettered access, a direct line of communication, a travel when he wants it, um, participation in meetings where he thinks my voice is important, or wanted, and and then also a combination of communications and policy, uh, the ability to go on TV on his behalf, which he likes. Even when I try to take myself on TV or reduce my TV footprint, he notices immediately and makes sure I get back on there where people start writing ridiculous articles like, is she in the doghouse? We haven't seen her on TV in 12 minutes. Um, so that's all there. But those, I think it would have to just be someone who's right outside his office. I'd have to be right outside his office, part of his inner circle. And I actually think the president-elect deserves and expects to have the same 10 or so people he saw around him in these last few months of the campaign around him in the first few months or first four years of his presidency. 
You mentioned drain the swamp and that message. Uh, there's been some criticism of some of the cabinet appointments as being at odds with that message. Steve Mnuchin would be the one who comes to mind most, and I know that at a fundraiser this week for his uh, transition, uh, he referenced that Mnuchin had essentially asked for the job and he had done it. I know you were not at that fundraiser, but this is what I was told by a couple of attendees. What do you say to people who see contradictions in some of these picks? So draining the swamp really means not having lobbyists running the show, and it means not putting, trying to get rid of this duplicative, stale, shop-worn way of doing business in Washington, which is not the way business is done at the New York Times or the polling company or the Trump Corporation. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't exist. And so it's basically saying, what, what's, where's the best and brightest? What's the be what are the best practices? Where are the needs? Where what what is no longer needed, and Donald Trump is surrounding himself in his cabinet and elsewhere, Maggie, with men and women of diverse backgrounds who are qualified for these jobs, and so he's Steve Mnuchin is a wildly successful businessman who's made taken risks and made a lot of great um, business moves. is a job creator, is is a wealth generator, who has proven himself to have a, f a fine mind for finance, and you want people to surround you to do that. And the idea of draining the swamp, too, is to not throw additional crocodiles into the moat while we're trying to drain the swamp. Um, but we need a Secretary of the Treasury. The President-elect interviewed a number of qualified people for that position, and he's chosen Steve Mnuchin, and, and I want to help support that particular nominee and the others. People may not know this about your curriculum, Vaisha, but one of the roles that you have played in the past was working with uh, congressional candidates, male congressional candidates, on appealing to women and how to approach women, especially after the, the 2012 elections. You know, there, as you are aware, has been a, a fair amount of criticism of Donald Trump as to whether he could have benefited from that kind of training. What do you say to women who are troubled by your boss's past history of comments about women and allegedly his behavior toward women. How do you explain to them either what they're missing or what they should see differently? Well, first I would say to them, I respect their opinion. Secondly, I would say to them, there is a difference, and we saw it in this campaign, between what offends you and what affects you. And in the end, most voters went for what affects them. They did not want to be told constantly by the Clinton campaign this is what's important to you. Focus on this. Stare at this. Let me repeat this to you a thousand times in paid advertising, out on the stump, through my surrogate, through my messaging. And you must vote on this. And people just rejected it by and large because they wanted to vote on what affects them, which is everyday affordability and how crushing it is and elusive it is for many households, long-term financial security, more choices in health care and education, a, a real good, muscular, robust plan that shows toughness and resolve and just more action on defeating terrorism and all of its ills. Someone who's saying, I'm going to renegotiate bad trade deals and bring those jobs back from Mexico and China and build the wall and then Mexico pay for it. So those were, the, those were the messages that ultimately catapulted him to the presidency. I would say to those women on a personal level, I've always seen Donald Trump in many different settings with many different people to be engaged gentlemanly, gracious, certainly humbled by this job, humbled by becoming President of the United States and the gravity and responsibility of all that that means, but also very focused. And he's the kind of man they can relate to in that he always calls them like he sees them. You know, women as voters and just as consumers, frankly, as women are very good, very savvy 
at seeing somebody who's uncomfortable in his or her own skin, somebody who has who has put on airs or who is saying something somebody else has told them to say. You never get that with Donald Trump. You those that that's his voice. Those are his words, and he also has a rich tradition of hiring and indeed elevating, promoting women to the highest levels of the Trump Corporation of his campaign and now of his cabinet. And I would say, watch what I do, not what I say, by and large. I want to go back to something you said about him reaching for the most qualified people. Uh, One of his cabinet choices, Ben Carson, has been pretty heavily criticized as not qualified for the position at HUD. How do you address criticisms like that? And what went into the president-elect's decision to choose Carson? It's a very specious criticism. I think that Nancy Pelosi's criticism was seen of, of Dr. Ben Carson was seen as um, out of line. And dare I say, if someone were saying it about President Obama when he had first started, they would have been called a racist. I think it's unfortunate, very unfortunate, to denounce as unqualified an African-American man who came from very humble beginnings, whose mother raised he and his brother to cherish education She was very tough on them, discipline-wise, because she believed they had to focus on education to get them a better life. Um, And he is a world-renowned pediatric neurosurgeon and a brilliant man. He also is somebody who comes from a history of urban renewal, knows firsthand what is needed. And I just remember when President Obama was elected, even when he was campaigning, if anybody dared mention the fact that he had been in the U.S. Senate for a hot minute, and before that, a state senator in Illinois. And gee, did he have the qualifications? Was he experienced enough to be president? People were roundly criticized and crucified and even called the racist label. Um, and then yet here with Dr. Carson for an appointment to the cabinet, somehow it's legitimate criticism. It's not. He is very, first of all, you have to be committed to the job and you have to be knowledgeable and be willing to learn and to listen. And... I would just remind people that it's called her housing and urban development, and we need a lot more in our inner cities um, than we have now, frankly, to rescue people from poverty and from a lack of affordable and quality housing and schooling, and we need more entrepreneurial opportunities. We need more job opportunities. Dr. Carson was very helpful to Mr. Trump during the campaign, too, and going to places where Republicans normally don't go, Detroit, Michigan, Cleveland, Ohio. They don't go there for the purposes he went, which was to, was to visit the African-American communities. And Dr. Carson went with him many times to do that. So I know he's very committed to this. Okay, let's pause there for a moment. We'll be back after a short break. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are hand-picked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com 
slash audio app. I'm back with Kellyanne Conway, advisor to President-elect Donald Trump. I want to pick up talking a little more broadly about the transition process, which has been unusual in terms of the public spectacle of aspects of it. Uh, uh, What insight can you give on his process for choosing his cabinet members that people aren't seeing outside of, you know, there's the C-SPAN camera in the lobby. Um, There is the constant chatter and tweeting about who is coming into the building and who isn't. What can you tell people about what they're not seeing? What they're not seeing is a man who literally works around the clock. Uh, It's a mystery to all of us around him as to when he sleeps. We have no idea. And he is somebody who's taking phone calls, taking advice, meeting with people one after the next after the next, and then taking a little time to digest that and reflect upon it and discuss it. We also see him absorbing a lot of written material. And I think that is something people don't appreciate enough about him. The man reads constantly. And that's important because obviously he's reading the news, he's reading opinion, he's reading a diverse number of sources in print, print media to help him see what's being said out there and what's being covered out there and how it's being said. That's important too to a president, in my view, Maggie, particularly one who's been you know, pretty much roundly criticized, if not dismissed by many in the mainstream media, because it reminds me of the way President Reagan used polling and tried to absorb the media and respond to media coverage of him. And it was to ensure that the message he intended to convey was the one, in fact, being received and attributed back to him, that he's cutting through the noise and the silence. And the way you do that, by and large, is you read the news coverage. And then you're better equipped to understand what the noise is and why the silence is there and to put your message to put your message in there. He's someone who has many different entry points for information And he likes to apply his own beliefs and his instincts and his knowledge to those additional inputs, weigh the consequences, and make a choice. And that's something that's going on behind the scenes quite a bit. The other thing I would tell people is that he's really enjoying it. There's no anger. There's no sadness. He's really enjoying it, and he's enjoying getting to know new people, reconnecting with people he's known before, forming the cabinet, talking to the intelligence officers, loves the Secret Service, and then, of course, as you know, is back on his thank you tour to do more of those rallies that he's known for. One of the people who has been a focus of a lot of attention and criticism is Steve Bannon, who is going to be the chief strategist in the White House. He was the CEO of the campaign. You've worked with him for a very, very long time. I'm hoping that you can talk about how you see these criticisms, your view of of Mr. Bannon, and whether you think this is going to be a distraction or a source of conflict going forward for a while for the administration as it takes root? Let me answer the second part first, Maggie, if I may. It will not be a distraction because Steve Bannon, the chief strategist of the White House and the former CEO of the campaign, as you say, has the trust of the president, his boss, and he answers to him. Why does he have the trust? Because the president knows him. He listens to him in meetings. He knows his advice. He knows he was the general of our campaign. He's a brilliant tactician. Uh, He made suggestions and saw things that others maybe had not during the campaign. And when we followed those paths, they led to they led to different pieces of the victory. It's also incredibly devoted here and indefatigable. This is not an easy job, as we all know. And um, I think Steve is being very unfairly maligned by folks who get one thing in their head and never really want to see the measure of the man. You asked about being misunderstood. You asked me earlier about being misunderstood. We're all understood 
misunderstood to a certain extent because nobody wants to look at the full measure of the person. They just want to know what they see in an article or they see in a screaming headline or they cherry pick from a former statement and then judge somebody 63 years on earth through that prism. This is a man who was a Goldman Sachs vice president, a naval officer, a Harvard Business School and Georgetown undergrad uh, grad, uh, graduate. Uh, this is somebody who's a father of three daughters. It's somebody who has uh, part of the rights to Seinfeld. That's pretty clever and cool. This is just somebody who's been successful his in entire life. And if people look at Breitbart.com and they look at certain things that have been written, it's easy to disagree with some of those things, but it should not be so easy to lay them on the shoulders of one man who has an entire career by which to be judged. You said the president-elect trusts Steve Bannon. We know that he trusts you. Who else does he listen to and who else's opinion really matters to him? His chief of staff, Reince Priebus, his children, his uh, daughters-in-law and son-in-law, Jared Kushner, his wife, Melania Trump. She is really just a completely undervalued treasure and just point of access point of advice and consultation and brilliance for him. I mean, she is somebody who just does not call attention to herself, and she is happy to support her husband's presidency and be mother to their, speaking of balance, mother to their son while his father is out running for president and now transitioning as the president-elect. But there are a number of people he listens to, and certainly his vice president, Mike Pence, very, very trusted voice in the ear of Donald Trump. Uh, he's the head of our transition, and it shows. I think there's been over 80, 82 meetings with men and women who may serve in the cabinet or the senior staff in the administration, but they're just happy to give their advice and counsel and experiences and vision. They've talked to over 50 world leaders, and Mike Pence has a, has a hand in that as well. You mentioned Mrs. Trump, uh, who is, as you said accurately, uh, pretty unknown to most people. She was not frequently on the campaign trail. She was much more often at home and with their son. Is there any moment that you can think of that comes to mind about her as key voice for him or key sounding board for him or a moment where she helped him at a tough point or at a, at a tough crossroads or with a tough decision during this campaign? Two times. The first and probably the most obvious one is after the Hollywood Access tape. I'm sorry, after the Access Hollywood tape. Uh, the very next day we were in the residence. Of course, she was there. And she lends her advice. She lends her support. She put out a statement all on her own of what her opinion was and what she wanted the world to hear. And then the very next morning, boarded the motorcade with her husband and Steve Bannon and me in that motorcade and the rest of the family. And we got on the plane and we went to the second debate in St. Louis. Some women may have done that. Some women may not have done that. But that was her choice. And that was her in her voice, if you will. That was her showing her support for her husband. Talk a bit about the relationship between the president-elect and his three oldest children. Uh, I said recently that everything that the Trumps do is through the prism of the family. I've had several people describe the choice of Mike Pence as the vice presidential uh, nominee as a family decision, and that is clearly very genuinely felt. Do you think that's accurate, and how does that explain what we're seeing in terms of the working out of the business situation and disentangling? That's an accurate depiction that everything is through the lens of the family in that they're incredibly close. They work together. They play together. Um, and that includes Tiffany Trump also, who really did a great job out on the campaign trail amidst studying for the LSATs, which I've done and is not easy. 
Um, my father certainly wasn't running for president. And uh, I just think the adult children and the president-elect have this symbiotic relationship where they do business together and they spend a lot of time together. You know, Donald Trump's preferred company is his family. They're his, I think they're his favorite hobby, if you will, meaning like when he wants to spend downtime, it's with his family. And they have been obviously at the highest levels of the Trump corporation already, and everyone expects that to continue. I know that the president-elect will have a press conference on December 15th next week to give further detail about how that may work. But these are three adult children who already have executive positions within the corporation and will continue to run the business one expects or or pieces of it. But I think it doesn't come without sacrifice, Maggie, because they've had to put deals on ice, not pursue other deals, uh, waiting for the outcome. And of course, he won. So I'm sure they're losing a lot of money in that. You never know what you could have pursued had you just kept going along in this successful company, which was whose revenues were extraordinary. I mean, a real American success story. Ivanka Trump has made clear that she wants to use what influence she has in what will probably be a White House move, not definitively, but but potentially, for issues she cares about, among them pay equity for women and climate change. But on climate change in particular, the incoming head of the EPA has been criticized for his views on climate change, and they're at odds with some of what she has been believed to be talking to her father about. Who does he listen to last, and how does he weigh the views of his family, who he's closest with, with his cabinet members? He listens to himself last, Maggie. That should be very clear to anyone who's in his company. And he makes the final decision. He's the arbiter, and he's the one who got elected to do so. So that's the most appropriate. At the same time, what you just described is a classic President-elect Trump situation, where he is willing to hear a diversity of viewpoints and two sides of the coin indeed on a contentious issue like climate change. And uh, I think it's just important for people to look at what his positions are, because they're all pretty much out there for all, for all to examine, and realize where he's going directionally and substantively at the moment on each of these issues. My last question for you is you have said that he is humbled by this position. He certainly has seemed overwhelmed by the enormity of the job. Yet in the last couple of weeks, we've seen him tweeting at a, at a pace and with an intensity that we saw during the campaign. Has he changed? And if he hasn't, can he change? How would you like him to change? <laughs> That's really the question. I'd, I don't know that he needs to change if your question is about how he communicates with vast swaths of the American people. He looks at his social media platforms, particularly Facebook and Twitter, as an unparalleled platform through which to communicate his message again, as I said earlier, through the noise, if there's a lot of noise on something, or through the silence, if nobody else is covering this particular issue. And so one can say there was silence on Boeing, or there was silence on Carrier, or there was too much noise on how he feels about X, Y, or Z. And so he cuts through that by expressing his own opinion, and it becomes a news story the moment he hits send, or the moment he, he hits tweet. I don't know what the protocols are. Those are above my pay grade. I don't know what the Secret Service and others will say or do with the president of the United States phone or access to those social media platforms. But I assure you that a lot of what he tweets are articles or event listings that people otherwise, but for him tweeting, would never have access to that, would never have seen it, the $35 million or so that he claims he has between Twitter and Facebook. So it is, it is a powerful tool in many ways. 
Um, but if, if people are asking, is he going to change being unconventional or unpredictable or taking his case directly to the people, that I doubt. Are there risks to tweeting about individual people as president in the way that he has throughout the campaign and the way that he did with a, a labor leader this week? It depends on the situation, but he never means anybody any harm, I can assure you that. He just doesn't. He looks at himself as a cultural and political observer. He obviously is a huge change maker. He's in a position of enormous power, and he's an opinion leader. Uh, and he is expressing himself at any given moment where others may put out a press release or have a press conference or get someone else to do it, or frankly, what's usually more the case for typical politicians, Maggie, dither around about what to do, you know, really screaming Jean Valjean, who am I, on everything. He's a master connector, master communicator. He's also a master learner and listener. My really last question, the transition team uh, has been doing a lot of quiet behind closed doors work for a while now. Uh, there have been some reports of factionalization or fighting or bickering. What's your perspective on how the team is doing? If there's factionalization at the transition here in New York or D.C., then I am clueless about it because I just don't see it. Everybody's so busy that it, it reminds you of the campaign all over again in that we're small in number, scrappy at heart, and just incredibly energetic and and frenetic and active in, in execution and delivery. I see that in the transition as well. Whereas there are meetings, there are phone calls, there's stuff going on, there's but it's just execute, execute, execute because we feel like we're running against the clock, not running against each other. So if there is some backbiting, if people are trying to get curry favor or zing each other privately in the press, I those to me would be unfortunate because we we have a good system going here. And I've been down to D.C. to our two transition offices, and that's just humming. And we have very little time. And it's, it's, it's funny, in this place, nobody even talks about the inauguration. I said, boy, I, get, I better get on that, because nobody even talks about the inauguration. We're actually talking about transition. Thank you for doing You're this. welcome. That's it for The Run-Up. The Times is aggressively covering and will continue to cover many of the issues raised by Kellyanne Conway in this interview, in particular at the moment, the cabinet nominations and concerns around the tangle of family, business, and politics that accompany the Trump family into the White House. You can find all of that coverage from me and my colleagues on the Politics and White House team at NewYorkTimes.com. Michael Barbaro will be back next week. Thanks for listening.